Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey, what's up, everyone? Nice to have you here for episode 208. And like 207, I have another returning guest. This time, it is Brannigan Barrett, who I'm sure many will remember was on Chat with Traders a few years back, uh, episode 114 to be specific. After trading prop for a large part of his career, uh, Brannigan has since branched out and backed himself, launching a private fund, Habitus Capital. With himself as CIO and two others, the fund trades select futures markets across commodities, currencies, indices, and bonds. So the first time we spoke, it was very much about Brannigan's process-orientated approach to becoming a bigger and better trader. So naturally, this episode is somewhat of a continuation and talking about his growth and progression since. This leads to Brannigan's thoughts on practically applying patience and how he's systematized much of his decision-making throughout the day. We also talk a bit about the fund and end with macro themes that Brannigan's monitoring. I might also add, if you've read Ray Dalio's book, Principles, I think from listening to Brannigan speak, you'll quickly catch on to the fact that it's had a great influence on him. Anyway, that is everything I need to say. Folks, here is Brannigan Brett on episode 208. I can appreciate this might be a little bit of a open-ended question to start things off with, but in what respects are you a better trader compared to three years ago, or at least how have you grown in this time? Because last time when we spoke, you know, there was the theme throughout our, our conversation was becoming a bigger and a better trader. So I'd like to just start by kind of following up on those few things or those couple things. First of all, starting with how you've become a better trader in that time. Okay, and I think I think that's a very good question. And you know, in a nutshell, I think the the understanding of the entire process of trading is where I've developed uh, as a trader. Now, what that means, I mean, and that obviously sounds very very you know, blasé, but what it means is that 
for example, okay, I finally come to understand the power of consistency, momentum, and patience. Uh, now, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but you have to be patient or, you know, obviously you have to be consistent. But I, I don't think it's a case of just knowing that you have to be consistent or, or patient. I think you actually have to practically apply it uh, to, to your trading. And that's kind of where a lot of my developments come over the last few years is that I'm finally starting to not only, you know, be patient, uh, but I'm also starting to see the uh, the repercussions of being pay, you know, patient and, and what the follow on of that is. And most people, and again, I think it's not just with um, with uh, you know these three aspects, but most people don't recognize that in order to get to that next step, or what I like to think of, open that next door, you first have to actually you know be patient. You have to see the power of being patient and and what it can unlock potentially for you. Now, let's go and use a basic hypothetical example in trading. Okay. Most people, you know, would, would have some degree of patience or not. Now, what I found is that when I am patient, when I'm, you know, sort of exhibiting this characteristic called patience, what I found is that it helps me to slow down my decision making process. Okay. Now, what I mean by actually physically seeing the advantages of this is what ends up happening is when I get into trades and I've been patient, I'm then capable of applying a very strong approach or methodology or decision-making process as a result of being patient. It's almost like saying if I, if I wasn't patient, my decision-making process is not as good as if I am patient. And why I think this is so pertinent and so, so important is that you cannot understand that sort of value add until you be patient for a long enough period of time. It's not just a case of coming in for one day and being patient and voila, you know, everything is, you know, all this wonderful, you know, things open up to you. It's it's an ongoing process. And when you can, you know, for me personally, I think those are the three biggest areas of development is I've not only shown consistency, and I don't just mean consistency in results, I mean consistency in routine, consistency in terms of, you know, debriefing, consistency in terms of how I analyze and interpret and all these things, it's an overall consistency, uh, as well as momentum, you know, not just momentum in a week or two, it's momentum in all aspects of the game. Uh, and the same with patience. So that's one of the really big areas that I've, I've grown a lot in the last, uh, you know, since we last spoke three, four years ago. Um, and then also understanding, you know, and I think this is one that could be quite interesting for a lot of listeners is, you know, everyone seems to think there's a set of rules that are given to us by the the markets okay i actually think it's 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 the opposite i think we have to as traders decide what set of rules we want to adopt uh when engaging with the market okay for example and i'm going to use a very simple example a lot of traders believe you've got to trade from open till close so cash open to cash close okay what if i told you that let's say you set a rule that you only traded the first hour of trade and the last hour of trade Right. What would that do ultimately for your trading? Well, suddenly it narrows the focus, it narrows the opportunity set, it narrows you know, all the things you have to do within a trading day. Okay? Now, the mistake traders make is they believe that there are a set of rules they have to adhere to as opposed to what rules are they wanting to follow and they're willing to follow to perform optimally. And that's really, really important because I, you know, I didn't know that in the, you know, the first couple of years of my career because I started at a trading firm. I was told this is how you do it. You know, always be at your desk. You know, work as hard as you can. Work 14 hours a day. Blah blah blah. 
But in actual fact, now that I'm starting to adopt my own set of rules, and those rules are, are, are what allow me to perform optimally, I'm starting to see so many, you know, really interesting, not just results, but, you know, outcomes as a result of applying my rules uh, to the market. Um, and then the big one, and this is something I've kind of spent the last three, four years developing is just monitoring the decision making process. Okay, so most people monitor results, they monitor performance, uh, they look at outcomes. Uh, I I don't believe in in following the outcomes. I believe in following the process. And you know, I've I've spent the last three years building a system. Uh, and again, it sounds a lot more complicated than what it is. All it does, in essence, is let's say I I believe I've got a, a specific stra- a trade strategy. Now, rather than me have to sit there all day and you know wait for this trade strategy to become uh, you know applicable, I simply have a system that says, Hey, Brannigan this trade strategy is valid right now. And what I simply then do is I go through a a specific process. Now, I'm going to take you through the basic essence of that process. And if you know, if if you want to go further that direction, we can. But in essence, all it does is it's a filter. Okay, so we have a filter and it's taking all the data. And when I get in the morning, this data just says, hey, Brannigan, this is the market you want to trade. Why? Because there's volatility, there's order flow and momentum. So I say, okay, great. I then, within that context, have got a signal. So just because there's a there's a, a you know there's a, a an opportunity to trade doesn't mean there's a strategy that I can perform in. So the moment that strategy is you know is available, then I get a, a, another signal that says, "Hey, Brannigan, time to trade." Okay, but it goes a step further because what then happens is I've got what we call cue cards. Okay, and all a cue card is is it's a pop up and it says. Hey, Brannigan, this is a breakout trade. This is your stop. This is your entry. This is your target. This is what you're trying to do. Goes a step further. I then, you know, go to the market, then I'm discretionary, so I execute manually. But the system then says to me, okay, tell me where your stop is. I simply tell it where the stop is. And the system says, okay, this is the amount of lots I want you to use. This is the size I want you to use. And these are all the things I want you to be aware of. Now, where this decision-making process comes into it is that at the end of the day, because I'm capturing all of this data and all these decisions, I can now go look at these decisions. So I can go and say, okay, the system said do ABC. What did you do? Did I do ABC? Did I do something different? Okay. If I did something different, why? What was the logic behind it? What was the, the thought coming into the head that, that's ultimately making me veer from what I like to call a predefined strategy? And I think this is crucial traders do not have a predefined strategy. And by predefined, I don't just mean you want to play a breakout and you understand a breakout and this is what you do. No, no, no. Predefined is every single controllable decision that you can make is defined before you enter into that decision. Why? Because the moment there is risk on the line, guess what? Your decision-making process changes. Okay, so everything you can control, you want to have it predefined so that at the end of the day, I simply just compare what did I do versus what should I do? Um, and, and that's been probably the highlights of the last three, four years is that I've separated, you know, predefined decision making from in the moment decision making. Okay. When you're in front of the screen, when you've got risk in the market, you shouldn't be thinking. Okay. There should be no thought process. The only thing you should be looking at is what are the objective facts? What's coming through from the market and what is happening in terms of this trade? Right? That's the only thing you should worry about. Not am I onside, offside? Am I winning? Am I losing? Not how much size should I use? None of these things are relevant 
in that moment. They're relevant once you exit the trade, once you get to the end of the day, and once you start holding yourself accountable to your decision making. So those, those are pretty much the three biggest changes that have occurred over the last three, four years. Great. <laughs> well, I'd love to dissect that more, uh, particularly what you just described there in the decision-making processes and the systems you've built around that. I'd like to go into that a lot further. I just had a question first, though, about something you said right at the beginning. Uh, so before we go too much further, you said that a lot of people understand that there is great value in being patient as a trader, but it's about actually practically applying it. I think those were your words. Can you just talk about how you would actually practically apply patience? Like, what do you mean by that? Sure. So I think, and, and it's, it's a wonderful, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've ventured quite a bit into stoicism. Um, you know, I love the philosophy of that. I love the simplicity of stoicism and the objectivity. Now, why I think that's important is because the stoics believe that, you know, understanding something or hearing something is not the same as adopting it. So in order to adopt something and for it to become a part of your daily life, you have to practice it. So how do we practice patience? Well, it's not a case of sitting on my hands. It's not a case of uh, I just look at it and watch opportunities go by. For me, in order to be patient, I have to understand who I am. Okay, I have to understand what is my natural tendency towards being patient. Okay, now I can tell you, hands down, I'm very impatient. I expect things very quick. I expect things to move in a very quick fashion. So I know that about myself. So now I have to say, how do I mitigate that? How do I take this thing called patience, take my ability to be patient, and find a practical way for me to test my patience? Okay, now there's a number of ways you can do it, and it's a very personal thing. For me, what I like in terms of patience and, and what I tend to do is I take all of my decision-making and rather than me making decisions in a moment, I create certain processes to tell me when I need to do something, okay? Why I do that is it's the whole concept of reverse engineer, right? I am impatient because I allow external information, external sort of you know noise to come in and that almost makes me react. It makes me do something because I'm naturally impatient. So all I say is, well, I don't want to act until I'm told to act, right? It teaches me this process that if I just follow this step-for-step -step process, what will end up happening is not only will I become more patient, but I'll recognize the upside of being patient, which is I'm making better decisions. Now, there's a number of different ways to adopt a practice to becoming patient. You've got to find what works for you. I think that's, that's the key to it. For me, I find that works for me. Uh, some people maybe use visualization techniques, some people use meditation, uh, and some people sit on their hands. I mean, there's, you know, some people maybe go watch back, uh, you know, video replays of themselves trading and, and try and sort of filter in the decision making and they become patient in that way. I think the point is you've got to find what works for you. For me, what works uh, is adopting a process that then teaches me the upside of being patient. I think that's a good way to summarize it. Okay. And just to save any confusion about uh, this subject of patience, what you're talking about here is patience with regard to executing, right? I think patience with regards to everything. You know, I, I think, you know, for example, okay, so the last, the last 
you know, since we last spoke, I've obviously taken on a lot of um, uh, triathlon training. So I do Ironman training now. I kind of have my sights set on on the top of amateur triathlon, which is, you know, heading towards Kona, Hawaii. And when I adopted this, you know, this discipline called triathlon, okay, what you very quickly realize, I, I still remember it, you know, it was 2000 and, uh, 2017, I, I got my coach and I said to my coach, look, you know, I want to, I want to be at Kona in 12 months. Okay. That's your job. You're going to get me there. I'll do whatever it takes. Now, the reason I mentioned this story is because it's extremely relevant. What ended up happening, uh, 18 months later was I was brought back down to earth. Okay. And the realization hit that in order for me to become good enough and to have the necessary skills and fundamentals to be at a point where I could compete, not only was I going to have to you know, be willing to be consistent and take momentum, but be extremely, extremely patient. Why? Because the reality is at the end of the day, if we take the basic Ma- Malcolm Gladwell concept of 10,000 hours, okay, in order for you to become really good at something, there's a specific number of hours that you're going to have to do in order to get to that point. Now, the reality is you can only go so quickly. You can only do those hours so quickly. And that's, that's hard to sometimes understand when you're caught in the heat of the moment. But when you can take a step back and you look at a big picture of things, you can start to see that, well, if I can only do two hours a day, well, that means it's going to take me four or five years. And it was that that kind of brought me to this aha moment of, the reality is, yes, of course, I might be good enough and I might have the skill and, and all these things, but I'm still going to have to work my socks off for the next four or five years before I can even contemplate uh, you know, becoming a top-level athlete. And it's the same in trading. Okay? Most people step into this game and they think, well, oh, yeah, I'm patient. You know, I, I can wait six months. But the problem is they, they're not realistic. They don't understand that this is a skill adoption. Trading is no different to any skill adoption. It takes a specific amount of hours for you to get to a point where you can you know, even begin to understand and, and become consistent. These things take hours. So for me, that's, that's something that's helped me understand this concept of patience you know, quite dramatically, actually. That's a nice little story. When are you, um, how far are you from being ready for, what is it, Kona? Is that the big event? Kona. Yeah, that's the big event. Um, look, I've spoke to my coach about this and uh, I've been working pretty hard over the off season. So with this coronavirus, obviously a lot of people in terms of you know the athletic world have taken a step back for obvious reasons. Everyone's been kind of locked down. Um, and for me, I've, I've taken the opposite approach. I've kind of seen it as a potential opportunity and edge, which is if I get on the bike now and I'm on the road running and I'm doing the hours now, I'm gaining on a lot of athletes. Um, you know, if you take an average week, you're looking at 11 hours, 12 hours a week of training. If you assume that the average athletes are probably only putting in 50% of that, I can very quickly gain in a, in a period of six months, nine months, 12 months, I, I could be in a position where I can actually, you know, compete. And I think that's, that for me is exciting. You know, there, there's, most people don't recognize that, yes, coronavirus has dealt the world very different hands. Okay, everyone is dealt a different hand. And we all have to understand the hand we've been dealt and play that hand. Now, for me, I feel the hand I've been dealt, you know, obviously, fortunately, as traders, we, we could keep trading where, you know, all we need is an internet connection. But I feel like this is an opportunity for me to make the most of it. Not only can I do my job, but I can also get ahead in terms of what I'm trying to achieve for myself. Um, so, yeah, 12 months time, we, we, we should know whether or not the hard work of the last, you know, three years is, is going to pay off. <laughs> 
Very good, man. Very good. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The other thing I'd like to pick up on uh, is obviously the decision making. You kind of spoke a bit more about it there, but... The part I found really interesting in what you described earlier was the the systemati- oh, always get this word wrong systematization of the decision making process. I think that was quite unique. Can you talk through that in more detail? Yeah, it's a lot simpler than people think. And I, I would say to anyone that's starting trading, that's been trading for many years, that you know, keep things simple. Okay, the more simplified. Uh, the better your decision-making process is going to be. Now, in a basic sense, okay, every single charting platform that I know of will allow you to, in some shape or form, extract data. Okay, and if they don't extract, they allow you to extract data. They will definitely allow you to signal or condition certain things on data. So that's your first step. Okay, if you're someone that you know wants to trade weekly breakouts or weekly double tops because you like the trade strategy and you like breakouts then it's very, very simple to put that condition onto your charts, right? Now, if that's your single strategy, then all you do is you're sitting around and you're waiting until that opportunity set presents itself. If it doesn't, you don't do anything. If it does, you need to now execute, right? But that's the next step. It's not just a case of what we call filtering, okay? So there's, there's filtering and signaling, two very different things, right? Filtering is taking data and narrowing the funnel. Think of a funnel that narrows. We've got all this information, volume, price, moving averages, la, 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 all these things going on, volatility, momentum. Narrow it down. Narrow the focus to say that all I want to know is tell me, for example, when a market is volatile. Okay? And this, is, this, is, this might sound grind, groundbreaking to a lot of you, but if you're a breakout trader, the best breakouts are going to occur when the market's conditioning is volatile by nature. Why? Because the market is moving over a greater series of prices. Therefore, the opportunity set is better. Okay? So you can create a simple condition that says, tell me when a market is volatile. When it is, then you want to be switched on to potential momentum plays. Right? So that first part is what we call the filter. You're filtering data. The second part Sorry. is this, yeah. How does that first part work for you, like in, in your particular situation? How have you got that set up? 
Okay, so I've got a uh, an Excel sheet. Okay, and I mean I can give you. I've got it up in front of me actually. Um, so it sits next to me, and when I get in the morning, this Excel sheet will tell me the following. And again, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas so you've got somewhere to go off. Okay, first thing it'll tell me the correlations. All right, I want to know the correlations between my markets. What correlation is strong? What correlation is weak? Why? Well, because if right now the dollar is particularly weak and as a result all dollar products are bidding, well, I need to be aware of that because the last thing I want to do when there is a strong correlation in the market is go counter to that correlation. Okay. I then have a second filter called fundamental trend. Right? Tell me when there's a fundamental trend in the market. If there is, again, I don't want to go against it. I have no interest in going against it. Another filter, positioning. Okay, what is the market positioning? Is it neutral, overbought, oversold? What is the market positioning? All right. Um, inside days, uh, you know, range exhaustion, uh, daily extreme volume, volatility, uh, strong buy initiative, day to trend, initiative buys, initiative sales, pocket positioning. So it's it's a number of different things that are telling me that they're almost shaping the entire market. For me, when I get in the morning, I just take one look at the sheet. And literally, it says, hey, Brannigan, you're trading gold and oil today and nothing else. It's as simple as that. Okay. And I do that because realistically, as a human, there's only so much data I can you know, take in. Now, the more data you're taking in, the less effective your decision-making process is going to be. So the first part of my day, I've kind of, I've solved the solution of, of overburdening myself with too much data. Right? What I then do is I then say, okay, I've now got a market contextual understanding. That's all that's all you know filtering is. It's giving yourself market contextual understanding. Now I need to say to myself, okay, I've got three strategies. I want to know when these three strategies are relevant within that contextual market understanding. Okay, because there is a little bit of a fallacy that a trade strategy is a trade strategy is a trade strategy. Okay. The simple reality is that a trade strategy is not necessarily an opportunity. Okay, a trade strategy within a very desirable context. Now that's an opportunity. Okay, that's where the asymmetry starts to come in because, like I said, if I know a market's volatile and I know there's this juicy double top that there's going to bring some momentum in and the market is neutral in terms of its positioning, suddenly that starts to smell like asymmetry to me. And that is where me as a, as, a, as a day trader, me as someone that wants to follow the flow, that is where I want to kind of get excited and, and really commit not just you know, capital in, in, in a finance sense, but also emotional capital and decision-making capital. All these things you know, are relevant. Right? There's only so many good decisions you can make in a day. So you've got to make sure you deploy them carefully. Now, that's the first part. That's the filtering part. The second part's the signaling part, right? There's a lot of times when I'll be doing research, I'll be looking on the Bloomberg, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to have to look at a screen all day, right? And that's why I've got the signals because the signal says, hey, Brennan, guess what? We're starting to approach this breakout level in this volatile market called, I don't know, gold, okay? So suddenly my attention goes, all right, now I'm focusing. Now I'm zoning in. Now I'm watching carefully, right? Once I start to do that, the moment I enter that trade, I need to know all the information relevant to that trade at a click of a button. And that's what it is. It's not a case of 
oh, what am I going to do? What price am I going to buy it at? Where am I going to put the stop? Maybe the stop goes at six or no, maybe two or let me look at a chart. None of that. Okay, none of that. Once you have risk on the table, all of that decision-making process has to be taken care of, right? And that's the cue cards. That's the, this is the strategy called breakouts. When this occurs, this is what you do. This is where you place the stop. This is where you place the target, uh, et cetera, et cetera. These are the expectations. Okay, so crucial You'll often hear me when I tweet, you'll often hear me say, you know, that this breakout should show some really good momentum. There shouldn't be much opportunity to get in the breakout. Okay, I'm not saying that for any other reason that that is the probability of outcomes. That's the most likely uh, thing that's going to happen. If that doesn't happen, that's information. That's information where I can say my cue card says there should be a rush from price. There should be a rush into price and we should move very quickly away from the breakpoint. If the opposite happens, straight away I can compare. I can go, okay, well, it's supposed to do this. It's doing this. I'm on high alert now. Right? The best part is when I come at the end of the day, I can go back through that thinking. I can say, it didn't go quickly. My decision making in that process was, I'm going to get out because this breakout doesn't smell right. And I can then start to compare the decision I made to this decision that I should have made. And that's where you start to get really, really relevant data. It's not about wrong or right, but it's about what is relevant to my decision-making process and what's going to make me make better decisions in the future when this opportunity comes. Um, Can you talk about yeah, then, that yeah. bit a little bit more? I'm just curious to how you're actually collecting the data on these decisions. Is that something which is somewhat automated or is that kind of a manual review process at the end of the day? Okay, so all of the decisions, all of the filtering and signaling, all of that is automated, okay? And <laughs> it's no secret. There's no holy grail. It's called Microsoft Excel, okay? It links on an RTD, which is real-time data to CQG. And all I'm doing, in essence, is taking the data that CQG gives me, and I'm bringing it into Microsoft Excel. I'm then creating conditions in Microsoft Excel. That's just all macros that are constantly looking for specific things. So it's not overcomplicated. And the best part about RTD functionality is I can then automate this entire process. So at the end of the day, what happens is you've got a log and the log says, this signal happened at this time and this was the opportunity. This filter happened at this time and this was this. Uh, all of these things, even, even the risk management tool I use, okay, it says at this point in time, you entered the market with a five lot. You should have entered with an eight lot. You were under-risked. And it flags it. Okay, so at the end of the day, I come. I don't have to do anything except now I have to compare what I did versus what I should have done. So everything is automatically linked so that all I'm focusing on is let me click on the ladders, you know, on the depth of market or you know, whatever people call it. Let me execute. Let me focus on that execution. At the end of the day, I come back and I do the reflective analysis where I start to look at what I should have done and what I did do. How often do you not directly follow what has been signaled to you? On a daily basis, I'd say an average of five or six times. Okay. And, and that's the test. Okay. We, we spoke about how do you become more patient? Well, how do you become more disciplined? Uh, it's the same thing is that you've got the system in place. You should do what the system says. Um, but never forget the system is not a hard, fast set of rules. And this is where I, I truly believe that there's a misconception. Algorithms are not better than humans. Okay. Algorithms have their strengths. Humans have their strengths. Now, for me, 
if you can merge the strengths of the algorithm, which is things like filtering and, and uh, you know, signaling and all this, and then merge the decision-making process of humans, what ends up happening is I get to the end of every day, okay? And I go and say, well, I used five lots. I should have used eight lots. There was something that went wrong here, all right? Now I have to have this honest reflection. I have to say, what happened? Was I afraid? Did one of the correlated markets move? So I have to identify exactly what it is that made me make the decision that I made. Now, this is where the power of it comes in, is that it's not to say the system is right. The system is just systemized. It's just printing out what I've told it to print out. It's up to me to say, okay, in this instance, I as the trader was wrong. I got a little bit scared. Maybe I was a bit down in the day. I wasn't having a good morning. Maybe I slept badly. And that was the reason. Okay. Now that's important because in the future, if I come in on a Monday morning and maybe I didn't sleep well, I'm a little bit tired. I know that the likelihood of having a repeat decision like that is quite high. Okay. And there's something I can do about that. I can maybe go to bed early. I can maybe not trade early in the morning if my decision-making process is going to be hindered. The flip side of that is that sometimes the system is wrong. And sometimes you can now teach the system something new, which is the next time this happens, actually, I want you to flag a five lot and not an eight lot. Why? Because of this and this reason. And you update your system. So it's, it's, a, it's a constant back and forth between you and the system. And all you're doing over time is you're improving both your decision-making process as well as the decision-making process of the system. So it's, it's, a, it's just a wonderful feedback loop. And it's, it's just constantly evolving, which is exciting. But to answer your question, yeah, every day. Okay? There, there won't be a single day where I don't have the accountability report telling me you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. But that's the thing. It's an ongoing feedback loop. Yeah. When you were talking about this uh, earlier on, you said, uh, I mean, a lot of this has kind of been around decision-making as it pertains to executing, right? That's where a lot of the decision-making is is made. You said that once you're actually in the market, so you have a position, you've got risk on the table, it's then your job to take in, I think you called it objective facts that are coming through the market. Yep. Can you give an example of what you mean by objective facts? Like what would be what would be something which would perhaps cause you to maybe take that trade off earlier or manage it differently from how your system is kind of prompting you to? Okay, so, and, and yeah, straightforward uh, answer to that is, you take a breakout. Okay? A lot of people trade breakouts for good reason. In the event there's a breakout, the cue card will tell you the characteristics of what you want to see. So it'll say, you want to see a low volume area. Okay? Low volume is just simply uh, an area of prices where the market is very quickly maneuvered through. Okay? There's not much transactional flow that's occurred there. Why? Because there's a rush to get those prices. Okay? That's one of the characteristics that comes through. So the second characteristic that comes through is I don't want to see uh, any, if we call it a basic center words, I don't want to see any, you know, if we call it a candlestick, a, a low, I don't want to see a low taken out if we're breaking out to the upside. In other words, I want to see sort of one time framing in the direction of the break. All right. So there's two objective facts that I've identified pre-execution. Now, when I'm executing, I don't need to go and look for uh, a, an unlimited number of you know, objective facts. I'm just simply looking, are there these one-time frame candles? Yes, that gets a tick. Is there a, a low volume error forming as we rush away from price? Tick. 
If yes, the trade is good. The trade is valid and I know where the stop is and I know where the target is. If not, then I need to make reference to that. I need to be objective about that and I need to adjust the decision-making process. And that's all it is. Again, the objective facts, the problem a lot of traders, you know, and I see it so often with, with young traders, they're looking for too much. They, 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 they overcomplicating how much information they take in. And, you know, there's that funny old um, saying when we were young, you know, when we used to go into the risk manager's office and he asked, why are you stopped now? We all used to say the same thing, which is like, oh, I got into this trade and the price action changed. I mean, what does price action even mean? Come on, right? Price action has got to be something specific, something objective, something that you can, you know, be measurable, measurable against time after time after time, not price action. Right? Was there low volume error? Yes, tick. Was there uh, one-time framing? Yes, tick. Those are objective facts that in future examples of this breakout strategy, when the market is volatile, I can do the exact same process over and over and over again. And that's the key. And I think a lot of people need to just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this a lot today, but the power of a machine okay, is in its you know, specificity, if that's the right word, in its specificness, okay, is that it will do the same thing time and time and time again, regardless of the information coming in. But that's the weakness of the algorithms, okay, is that they cannot take in all the nuance information that we as humans can, all right? So it's about finding, merging the power of automation, machines, you know, all these kind of, you know, crazy things, and, and merging them with the power of human decision-making. You mentioned one of these conditions, or not conditions, but one of the things that you like to see around breakouts, I just, this isn't really sort of the, the main thing we're talking about here, I can appreciate that, but you spoke about low low volume error, area? Areas, yeah. Areas, can you just explain that a little more? Why do you like to see low volume areas around breakouts? Yeah, it's very simple. A breakout by nature, okay, if we understand the logic of a breakout, it's it's when the positioning of the market uh, suddenly shifts, okay? Uh, we get past a certain price point, which you call a trigger price. At that point, the type of participants and the number of participants entering at that price point should increase, okay? That's the logic of a breakout. We're breaking out. Therefore, a number of participants come into the market. A number of participants are executing in that market. So by that very nature, price should very quickly move away from that breakout point. Okay, so it's about understanding the principle of something called a breakout and what should you see for that principle to be valid. All right, so it's just about that is why we look for low volume errors because that justifies that we are seeing this thing called a breakout. How is it low volume though? Because from what you've described, it kind of sounds like there's more volume rushing into it at a yeah. breakout point. Yeah. So low by low volume, we mean in in relative terms, we mean there's a low amount of volume traded just after the breakout point. Obviously, there is a high total volume. Okay. But if we look at volume dispersed over an entire day, once that breakout point occurs, think about it logically. Let's say there's a breakout point at price point five. Right. If everyone wants to buy price point five, six, seven, and eight, well, who's going to be selling it? Okay. So by that very nature, there's only so much volume being offered at five, six, seven, and eight, which means the first buyers will get five, and the next six, and the next seven, the next eight, 
And eventually, the market will run into some liquidity, whatever price that might be. At that point, we'll start to transact relatively high volume. Why? Because buyers have now found a willing seller. But five, six, seven, and eight, in terms of total volume transacted at those prices, will be relatively low in comparison to where that liquidity is finally being provided. Gotcha. I th- okay. I understand what you're saying. It sort of goes through those prices and doesn't look back. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, the other part to, I guess, following up from when we spoke three years ago, one of the big things we spoke about was you were very uh, uh, process orientated in your approach to trading more size. So I'd like to ask you, I mean, how has your process been and, and how have you approached to, what's been your approach to progressively trading more size? Got you. Um, I, again, I think uh, the, I'm, I'm actually glad you didn't ask me, am I trading more size? Because I think that's probably the wrong question to ask. I think the summary of the last three years is I've gotten better uh, at applying size. Okay. One of, the, one of the things I struggled with a lot in my career is the ability to move and maneuver between trading relatively, you know, that sort of idea of let's say I've got, you know, risk on the day. Now, normally, every trade I'll risk, say, 10% of my, my daily stop. Now, some traders are capable of moving from risking 10% on a trade to suddenly risking their entire day on one trade. I've always struggled with that. Okay? I've struggled with it from you know, the idea of the psychology. I've st- struggled with it from that idea of just going all in and, and forgetting about everything else. I've always struggled with that. Now, why I mention that is because when you're weak at something, all right, there's this, there's this fallacy, I believe, that work at your weaknesses and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. I think that's a little bit false and misleading. I think it's one of those sort of uh, cliche type videos, you know, just work at your weaknesses. I think it's about finding things that can mitigate your weaknesses, okay? If I'm weak at managing risk, well, then I find something to mitigate it, right? Simply just working at it, simply trying to work at my psychology of going all in Right? I think that's counterproductive because you're going against the grain. You're going against what is normal to you. Right? So I believe it's about creating practical tools. Okay? Everything I'm going to talk to you about today is all tools. Okay? They're, they're just simply tools that are helping me to make better decisions. Now, the thing I created and I, I started this project in 2018 um, was to create what I call uh, an SRM tool, which is a systemic risk management tool or a systemized risk management tool. Okay. In other words, it's systemized. I don't, you know, oh, I've got a trade strategy. How much size must I trade? No. It's a tool where everything is predefined. So we treat risk management as a strategy. Okay. Now, what I'm going to say something that's really important. And I think it's something that people should write down and go and think about it. All right. Edge isn't in the strategy but in the application of the strategy. There's this real misbelief that I have to find this really good trade strategy and I'll make money. That is hogwash. That is such rubbish, okay? How you apply yourself to that strategy is what will determine whether you have an edge or not. Now, the reason I can, I can justifiably say that that is rubbish, okay, is I could guarantee you, I could take you and show you a number of successful traders. I could sit you right next to them for an entire week I could show you exactly what their trade strategy is. And you would walk away and you wouldn't be able to make money on that same strategy. Right? Not because you're incapable, not because of any other reason, but the application to the strategy is where the edge is. 
Most people don't know that. Most people are still busy searching for you know, uh, the perfect strategy that makes money. No, no, no. It's about finding a strategy, then finding an application to that strategy that will make you money, i.e. edge. Okay. Now, that's what a risk management tool is or a systemic or systematic risk management tool. It's simply just an application of risk to a strategy. What it allows me to do, it allows me before I get into a trade to simply, you know, just look at a screen. All I do is enter in the stop size and it spits out a number. It says magically five lots. Okay. I don't have to think. I don't have to think, am I over risk? Am I under risk? What's my PL on the day? Can I afford to? I don't have to think any of that, right? Because all the decisions are made beforehand. For example, I know exactly how much of my account is at risk at any day. I know how much I'm going to lose on any trade uh, on any given day. I know whether I'm reinvesting my profits on the day or I'm not reinvesting my profits. Okay. But none of that, none of that decision making process is relevant once I've got the risk on. Okay, it's relevant pre-risk, it's relevant post-risk, but it's never relevant when I'm taking on risk. Um, and that's that's it. I've just I've created a tool again using Microsoft Excel, nothing complicated, nothing smart or, or genius, but I'm just taking the decision-making process and I'm putting it before the point where I actually have to now focus and take risk. And yeah, that's that's probably been the biggest, you know, if I can call it anything, the biggest improvement that I've made in terms of managing risk. Now, I'm probably going to answer a question that you're thinking of asking. Is my risk management better? 100%. Am I managing risk in a way that is is what I would want it to be? Do I still make mistakes? I make mistakes every day. Okay, I get an accountability report every day that says you're under risk or oh, now you're over risk. You know, there was a controlled loss. There was a stop that was moved. I get all of these signals on a day-to-day basis. The point being is that I'm working at it. I'm working at this weakness constantly. I'm never going to be the greatest at managing risk. But I can tell you right now, the things that I am good at, market context, market understanding, all these things, those I can now maximize because I don't have to worry about, oh, am I going to get stopped out? Oh, did I take too much risk? Okay, so I'm, I'm directing my energies to my strengths and I'm mitigating. I'm not, you're never going to get rid of your weaknesses. That's the reality, but you can mitigate them. Okay, and when you mitigate them, then you're focusing your energy where it should be, which is on your strengths. Can we go back to that point that you really tried to emphasize there? That the edge is within the application of the strategy, not the strategy itself. You know, I don't want anyone to to be confused by that. Could you go into that in a little more detail? And I feel like there's probably more to it than just how you size on that strategy, which is is, is perhaps what someone might take away from, you know, th- th- this line of conversation here. Yeah, I, I think the important thing is the the application is dependent on the individual. Okay, let's come back to our example, seeing as we're talking about breakouts. Let's come back to that example, okay? I've just told you that I believe two of the, the key fundamental characteristics of a breakout is there should be a low volume area and there should be uh, a, a one-time framing, uh, you know, move in the direction of the breakout. Now, that's the way I apply myself to that breakout strategy. Now, you may have another trader that sits right next to me or an algorithm or an institution or whatever it might be that says, well, we see the same breakout. We, you know, we look at the exact same thing as this trader is looking at, except we're looking at characteristics that are different to him. 
right? So they approach the exact same strategy. We're both seeing the same thing. We're both seeing price. We're both seeing all the same data. They approach it and they apply themselves in a different manner. Now, application doesn't just mean what I'm looking for in terms of objective facts. It could be Mr. Hedge Fund says, well, we're going to take a 1% stop on this because we believe there is a 6-7% move in this, okay? Me, my approach is completely opposite to that. My approach is, well, I've got a very, very tight stop because I believe momentum to you know, be X, Y, and Z. The moment that that stop is triggered, I put my hands up and the trade's gone. Okay, so there's different ways that different participants in the market apply themselves to the exact same strategy. Right? And that's the key is you, it's not about how much size you use. It's not about knowing all the right strategies. It's about having an approach to the execution of the strategy that will work for you over time. Okay, now make no mistake, there are a lot of breakouts where I get out too soon or I leave a lot on the table. But guess what? That's okay because the rules that I've applied to the marketplace are very different to everyone else's rules. And that's the key. It's not about this is where a breakout should go and therefore I must do the breakout like this every time. No, no, no. It's how can I apply myself like this today and tomorrow and 10 years from now in such a way that it's going to be profitable for me in terms of my application. Okay, and that's what I meant by the rules, by understanding the rules. It's not the rules that are given to you by the market. It's the rules that you apply to the market that matter. Okay, it's the same with the application. It doesn't matter what the strategy is, right? What matters is your application to that strategy. Right, right. I think that clarifies it. It's a, it's a good example. So I guess the, the last part I'd like to speak with you about, and I think this has probably been an interesting development for you since uh, we last spoke, is you have started, I'm going to ask you for some clarification on how to pronounce it, hab habitus? <laughs> habitus. <laughs> habitus. Okay. <laughs> uh, habitus Capital, which you started late 2017. Um, so what's the deal there? What, what exactly is this? And also, um, you know, your career up until, well, I guess late 2017, you were pretty much a, a prop trader, uh, that far. What motivated you to go out and, and back yourself? Um, I think the, the basic summary of it is that prop trading is a specific approach. Okay. It's a specific, if we're going to use the lack of a better word, application. Right? Prop traders trade in a specific way, they manage risk in a specific way, and they execute uh, in a specific way and very successfully at it. For me, I feel there's a, there's, there's a lot more to it. And, and that was kind of it. Like I said to you, you know, throughout is that I don't believe that you've just got to focus on the human strengths of trading. Right? I love the machine elements, but I love the automation elements. And so that's all habitus capital is. It's saying, I'm going to take the strengths of the prop trader, which there are numerous, okay? And I've, I've been so fortunate to learn those from a lot of my peers through, you know, I think I'm now entering my 10th year, 11th year of trading. Um, and I've, been, I've managed to learn all those strengths. And now I want to fuse those. And that's what Habitus Capital is. It's kind of saying, well, look, I want to develop something that's not just prop. It's automation plus prop. It's take all the best of automation, take all the best of prop and fuse them together, put them together and create what I believe I think is the future of trading. I think that's where the edge lies. Um, 
and yeah, that, that's hence why I created Habitus Capital. Uh, I, I also love, I think one of the things I missed about, you know, when I was in prop is <clears throat> I love working with talented people. Um, and all the traders I were ever around, I mean, they're extremely talented, but they're very talented in a, in a sort of one directional way, which is trading. Okay. That's their skill set. Uh, and I love, I mean, the guy, for example, that does all my Excel stuff. I mean, he's brilliant. He's, you know, I, I watch how he takes on a, on a problem. And I mean, I would last probably 20 seconds trying to solve this problem and I'd just be frustrated. I'd give up, but he will go for a week or two and just keep trying to bang on trying to solve this problem. And it's, it's marvelous to see. And it kind of, it just allows me to be more creative. That's what Habitus Capital is. It, it allows me to venture away from being solely focused on prop and just really be creative and, and, and you know, use those creative juices in a way that I think can, can develop some pretty cool things. And what's the structure of this? Is it purely backed by yourself or you know, how would you describe that? Yeah, so Habitus Capital is, is purely backed by myself. We're a team of three. Obviously, when things are packed by yourself, it's it's like running a business and you have to learn all the skills and arts to running a business, which is by no means easy. Uh, I have a great respect for managers uh, since I started doing Habitus Capital. Um, so yeah, everything's funded by myself and, and we've currently got the three funds. Uh, so the one is obviously the leveraged futures fund, which is very similar to prop. Okay, it adopts uh, a methodology that we call access uh, f- leverage trading. Uh, and access just means... You know, you've got a specific strategy, but it gives you access to that trade. In other words, you've got the strategy and then you have very specific filters that say, bing, bing, this trade can now be accessed. Um, we've then got the fusion fund, which is a bit more of a swing type fund, very focused on momentum, very focused on on the bigger, you know, sort of uh, moves. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, the dream was to create the quant automated fund. Um, but the difficulty with that is, you know, we, we, we've been searching for... Uh, for a needle in a haystack, you know, we would love uh, to take on a like a CTO or someone that that loves trading, that's very focused on the technical side of things. But yeah, we're we're a firm believer in being patient. Look, I two years ago I was searching for uh, you know someone that's very technical minded, someone that loves the coding side of things. Uh, we're still searching for it, and you know we're not going to rush out and just take on anyone. Uh, we want someone that fits the culture, fits the mold, and and kind of sees things, sees the vision the way we do. Um, which also, funnily enough, it's the reason why we've kept the funding in-house. The moment you take on investors' money, the moment you take on outside capital, the problem is you you kind of you're giving a piece of your soul away, and then you're kind of saying to someone, "Well, you've got capital. How about I just make your money with your money?" And I, I just feel like the people that I work with, you know, the guys that are around me that that put all the hours in developing the models, developing the strategies, I really want them to benefit first from what we're creating. Uh, and then down the line, I mean, if, you know, if we do decide to take on outside capital, we will. Um, but for now it's, uh, it's fun and it, it's a really awesome venture and, and we're sticking to our, our values. And uh, I think that's, that's the most important thing for us. So the two other people that you've hired, what are their roles? So one is predominantly focused on the, you know, the Excel build out. So he does, you know, all these wonderful tools, please make no mistake. That's not me. I'm, I'm just not that way skilled. And one suggestion I would give to most people, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's something I've had to learn the hard way through my entire career. You can never be great at multiple things. That's just the reality. Um, you've got to be great at one thing. 
I'm I'm a good trader. I understand the world of trading and, and I'm learning every day. But that's my skill. That's where I've got to focus my time and energy. So if you're going to go this route of systemizing and creating all these things, you know, get someone who's skilled at it. Let them do it because they're good at it. It comes naturally to them. Um, so the one guy, uh, you know, takes on uh, takes on all of that. Uh, and then the other guy is kind of a little bit of a jack of all trades. He kind of does some of the social media, does some of the, you know, the business development side, you know, always keeping an eye out for, for potential investors. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a small team of three. Um, it's, it's effective. It's, uh, it's not going as lightning speed and not as quick as I would have ever wanted it to, but it's moving and we're progressing and we're learning and we're growing. And I think that's, that's the cool part. Yeah. Very nice, man. Well, um, it, it definitely sounds exciting. You mentioned that there's, well, you're ideally hoping to have three types of strategies or three types of funds yep. going. At the moment, it sounds like there's just the two. That's correct. So there's the leveraged futures and then the momentum or the, the fusion the fund, fusion. which yep. is like a longer term fund. Uh, th- they're both trading in the same markets, I take it? They're trading in the exact same markets. So, you know, again, <clears throat> maybe a tip of advice, but we focus on 10 markets. That's it. You know, would I like to trade all the equities in the world and all these wonderful things? Yeah, of course. But the moment you do that, again, you're starting to spread yourself. You're starting to maybe miss the picture. You're starting to take on on kind of risks that you don't necessarily understand. Um, we are open. Okay, make no mistake. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if you are a trader in the current environment, I think you do need to start paying attention to cryptocurrencies. And yes, I said the C word. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, uh, you know, the world is is moving in such a way where the fact that governments haven't already banned the cryptocurrencies and the fact that we're starting to see, you know, adoption from some of the big funds and some of the big institutions uh, means that if, you know, if we probably sit with cryptocurrencies for another year, the probability and the potential for a complete shutdown of them uh, starts to diminish. Okay, it's not that governments can't turn around. We see that in China at the moment. They're pushing back a lot on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Um, But a full-scale ban of it is starting to seem more and more unlikely. Now, again, whether you believe, and and again, I don't know if, if, you know, how we are for time, but one of the hardest lessons I had to learn this year, okay, if you followed me on Twitter, you will see I've been anti-crypto, okay, I've been anti-Bitcoin. Now, this is simply a narrative bias, okay, I have got a narrative bias against Bitcoin, right, because I don't understand it. And that's the reality. And that's when you start to get good with reflection and being honest with yourself, you'll start to realize when you're being, you know, objectively biased and, you know, when you're actually just fooling yourself. And I've been fooling myself with this whole concept of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. The reality is, guys, okay, if a market moves 10%, who cares what it's called? If it moves 10%, there's an opportunity. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because there are opportunities, very technical opportunities that are being exhibited in the cryptocurrency space. So don't, and this is the bias part, don't make the mistake I made, which is be biased against something because you don't understand it. First, develop the understanding, do the research, speak with the relevant people. And once you've got a little bit more of a qualified understanding, then make a judgment about something. Until then, I don't miss out on the opportunity just because, you know, you're being stubborn like I was. Okay. So yeah, we definitely focus on cryptocurrencies in the year ahead. 
I, I mean, the other one, obviously, is is definitely have a look at the currencies for the year ahead. All right, they've been relatively uh, docile for the last two years, um, but the volatility, the implied volatility, is starting to pick up. Okay, um, one of the wonderful things of this year, again, yes, it's been a difficult year, and and I, I have you know complete respect for everyone's gone through a different journey this year. But the reality is there's an opportunity now whereby because of all the fundamental shifts that we've seen across different countries, we're going to see relative changes in currencies over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. Okay, If one country is taking on massive piles of debt and is in, you know, unable to grow, but another country is able to grow and you know, is showing really good, uh, you know, has high interest rate uh, differentials like China, right? they can outperform against countries like Europe against countries like the US, which means the currency's got to move around, right? So keep an eye on the currencies, make sure you, you know, starting to move towards where the opportunity scope is. And again, last thing, the reason I say this, I was a bun trader, okay? I grew up as a bun trader. Now, why that's a wonderful example is I sat there in 2013 going, this is not possible. Buns can't go negative yield. This is rubbish. It makes no sense. Growth is positive, blah, 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 blah. Again, notice the narrative bias that I developed. All of a sudden, I was sat there fading the buns, selling them as they went 0%, then negative, and then eventually went to minus 1%. Right? So the reason I mentioned it is that buns are dead. Bonds are dead, guys. Okay? The reality is central banks are buying them, keeping yields low. No volatility. So move to where the opportunities. That would be sort of my... You know, we're going to speak in three years' time, so I'd say, you know, that would be my goal for the next three years. Focus on where the volatility is. Focus on where the opportunity scope is. <laughs> well, I think you read my mind. I was going to ask you just to take us out here. You know, what are the macro themes you're watching? Are there any major events that you're closely monitoring? But you've uh, you've beat me to it. So I don't know. Is there anything <laughs> else you'd like to add, or should we uh, should we wrap things yeah. up here? Well, I mean, if we've got time, I mean, I. I I do like the 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 F, the, the foreign exchange market. Um, is simply because there's a lot more that moves it. Okay, if you look at bonds, they're predominantly driven by growth and inflation expectations. Currencies are driven by a lot of different things. All right, um, but some of the themes I think you've got to pay attention to is. You know, I, I read a post this morning on the Bloomberg terminal and someone saying, oh, the ECB is going to step in and they're going to try and tame the euro. Blah blah blah. And I think there's this, this real misunderstanding that what's driving the euro is, is not necessarily just the dollar, but it's this belief that the dollar itself is no longer the number one reserve currency in the world. And we're starting to see diversification away from that. Okay, The biggest, if you go look at central bank flows this year, the biggest benefactor of a weaker dollar in terms of reserves being held by central banks is the euro, right? which means suddenly there's a belief coming into, not my belief, but institutions, central banks, that they need to hold more euros and less of dollars, right? Think about the flows that come from central banks, and you'll start to understand why the euro is trading 120 on screen or why it could be trading 125 in six months. Right? The same goes for Bitcoin right? or gold. The reason these markets you know, had such a big up move this year is because we're starting to see this belief that the dollar no longer exhibits a rate divergence or a growth divergence or a uh, uh, you know, we're better divergence in terms of future expectations than some of the other currencies. Right? That's why the market right now is positioned extremely short dollars. Okay, now remember I said to you right at the beginning, edge isn't in the strategy, but the application. Right? That's very, very important because the application is not just how you enter and exit trades, how you interpret things. Okay, for me right now, 
the entire market is short dollars. Okay, so if you know the entire market is short dollars, is there an opportunity scope to be short the dollar right now? Okay, possibly not because the asymmetry is not quite there. But at some point over the next one, two, three, four, five months, six months, maybe the dollar has a two, three, four percent appreciation, and bang, there's the opportunity scope. There presents itself an asymmetric opportunity because the big picture is for weaker dollar over the next six, 12, 18 months. And, and, and to sort of give you an understanding of where this thinking is coming from, you've got banks like Citadel talking about you know, 20% uh, you know, depreciation in the dollar next year. You've got Goldman's talking about a 12% depreciation. Right? So the big boys are thinking weaker dollar environment going forward. What does that mean for the rest of you know the, the currencies? Um, so yeah, I mean, all I would say, if you are trading currencies, keep an eye on implied volatility. Okay, make sure you know what the implied volatility is doing. Why? Well, currently, pound, pound against dollar, is for example, is twelve percent. That's the implied volatility. In other words, the currency in one month from now is capable of moving twelve percent. Okay, twelve percent is a ton of pips that you can you know extrapolate from the market if you have the right approach. Now. Go a step further. Everything's about Brexit right now. Okay, if you're not, you know, zoned in on the pound and Brexit and all these things, you're missing a potential opportunity. Why? The pound. If you go look at the cot report and you look at positioning, the pound's actually going short. Okay, the positions are building up short, despite the fact that the probability for a Brexit deal is going higher and higher. In other words, there is a very high probability of a Brexit deal in the next week. I mean, we're sitting at the end of November now, and there's a very high probability of a Brexit deal, yet the positioning from the big players, the institutions, the hedge funds, is going short. Okay, There's the opportunity scope. If the big players are going short, that tells you pretty much exactly what you can expect when a Brexit announcement comes. We're probably going to get the fast money, get everyone buying into the long position, and then you're going to see the profit taking and you know, a potential trend start to develop to the downside in pounds. So there's a lot of opportunity scope in the currencies. Okay, uh, Emerging markets, look at China. Right? China's been growing since February, March. Right? People are missing this trick. If you look at the Chinese yuan, it's massively appreciated since March. Why? China's growing. They can still grow potentially 5 6 7% next year. Right? They've got a, a, a very high interest rate differential compared to almost every other developed current, uh, country. Right? Remember what happened 2009-10. Okay, you're in Australia, obviously. Most people don't know that Australian 10-year, I think, was at 4.5%, back then. Okay, what happened to yields over the years from 2012 to 2000 and, you know, today? Well, you're pretty much almost at zero. Right? So there's going to be a, a flood of money moving from 0%. We borrow 0%, the carry trade, and we invested in high yield, whether it's Chinese yuan, whether it's any of the, China, the Asian economies. Okay? They've got very high relative yields. Um, so keep an eye on the currencies. That's the point. Right? There's going to be volatility. There's going to be opportunity scope in the next six to 12 months. Right. <laughs> well, Brannigan, <laughs> I think you've just uh, made some of my FX listeners uh, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> It's not very often that I have a, a currency trader on the podcast, so uh, I think uh, you will be appreciated. Uh, let's leave it there. Uh, if someone wants to follow you, uh, I know you're on Twitter. I know you've got a website. Uh, would you like to share those two things, please? Yeah, so the, the website is www.habituscapital.com. Um, obviously, we post our monthly report there, so you can keep up with, uh, sorry, our quarterly report. You can keep up with what we're doing. Okay, we, we believe in whole transparency. We have nothing to hide. We you know, want to show our performance. We want to show what we're doing. And 
you know, we want to hopefully build the relationships with, you know, the right kind of people in the future. So we're always open to, to strategic partnerships. Like I said, we want to work with the right people. Um, and uh, then, yeah, obviously we do actively post on, on Twitter uh, under the, um, uh, to question what the Twitter handle is, uh, but we do have a Habitus Capital Twitter handle. I think it's just Habitus Capital, um, as well as on LinkedIn. So, you know, if you like general sort of macro ideas, once a week, we post what we are doing in terms of the fusion fund. Okay, so you'll see all of our fusion funds uh, put on Twitter, put on LinkedIn, follow them. Okay, have a look, you know, and, and try and get an understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, the point being is that the trade opportunities we're taking are not, yes, they're speculative, but they're speculative based on objective fundamentals. So we're looking at the data and we're making good decisions off of that data. And that would be of value to to some of the followers. So. Yeah, you have it, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, then the website. Okay, and your personal Twitter handle is? Uh, trader underscore brand. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, I'll make sure all the links for everything you've just mentioned uh, in one place in the show notes so listeners can find those there, uh, which the link will be uh, chatwithtraders.com slash 208. You'll find everything there. Perfect. Brand again, Really appreciate your time. It's been an awesome uh, catch up and I'm sure we'll do it again. Three years. You know, in the near term. <laughs> Three years. Okay. Lock it in. It's a date. Thanks very much for your time. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.